Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. So a number of years ago, my wife Wendy and I, we traveled to Israel together, courtesy of some good friends of ours. And while I was there, I experienced a broad range of emotions. Awe, wonder, confusion, joy, sadness, indignation, surprise, hope, encouragement, excitement, and comfort, just to name a few. But there was only one place where I wept. You know, of all the places I visited in Israel, none put a lump in my throat and touched my heart as deeply as the Garden of Gethsemane. And I got to admit, at first, I was a bit surprised by my response. You know, I thought that maybe Golgotha or the garden tomb would have made a bigger impact on me emotionally. And don't get me wrong, those places touched my heart in a very real way, but not like the garden. And as I reflected on this, I began to understand why the garden resonated so deeply in my soul. You see, the real battle that Jesus fought was not so much on the cross as it was in the garden. You know, the spiritual battle Jesus fought in the Garden of Gethsemane was unlike any we can ever imagine. I mean, Satan unleashed his full force against Jesus there. In fact, there's actually a hint in the text that Jesus might have died in that garden if an angel hadn't come to him and strengthened him. It was that intense. And what is so amazing is the fact that the battle he fought there, he fought for you and for me and for all those who would believe in him, and even for those who would reject him. And it wasn't originally his battle to fight, it was ours. But he took it upon himself. And in the garden, Jesus knew he was heading to a cross. And the worst part of the cross, the worst part of crucifixion was not the physical agony, not for Jesus, as brutal as that was. It was the spiritual agony Jesus was going to have to endure on that cross. You know, if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you know how intense the physical suffering of crucifixion is. And if that's all that Jesus endured for us, that would have been a lot. But Jesus was going to the cross for another reason, to take upon himself the weight of all the sins of every human being who has ever lived or will ever live. Now, we have no idea what it was like for Jesus to take upon himself all the sins of the world. We have no idea the kind of immense spiritual torture he endured at the hands of Satan. We have no idea what it was like for the Son of God who had never known sin, who had lived for all eternity past a sinless existence to become sin for us and endure the spiritual death that was supposed to be ours. And think about this. Jesus had never been out of fellowship with his heavenly Father. I mean, he had enjoyed a perfect, pure, joyful, incredible relationship, ongoing fellowship with his father. But then on the cross, for the first time in his existence, the father looked away and forsook him. I mean, it's hard enough to explain that, let alone experience it. And in the garden, Jesus knew that all of that lied ahead of him. They say the worst part of any difficult endeavor we undertake is the anticipation of it all. In the words of Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. 
And as human beings, we don't usually know what an experience in the future is going to be like for us, do we? Like, we don't know how good, how difficult, how painful it may be. But Jesus, being the Son of God, knew exactly in detail how intense all his suffering was going to be. And folks, nobody ever suffered like Jesus suffered. And I think it was the weight of all that that hit me there in the garden. I mean, I felt an overwhelming sense of sadness and injustice that the pure, spotless, holy, perfect Jesus had to endure the full wrath of hell for a sinful, soiled, unholy sinner like me, like you. But at the same time, I felt this incredible sense of gratitude and hope because Jesus won that battle in the garden and he won the war against sin on the cross. And in the garden, I think we learned two things about Jesus that can change the way we look at him and change the way we live our lives. First of all, in the garden, I believe we encounter the clearest expression of Jesus's humanity. We see that Jesus was truly human and he wrestled with the same things that you and I wrestle with. Hebrews 4.15 says it best. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Boy, that is comforting. However you've been tempted, Jesus has been tempted. So he gets your struggles. Like he understands why you give in sometimes, even though he never did. He's gracious and loving and merciful and forgiving because he knows what it's like to be human. But at the same time, in the garden, I believe we encounter the clearest expression of Jesus's deity. You know, the Gospel of John tells us that with a single word, Jesus has the Roman soldiers who came to arrest him falling to the ground, eating dirt. I mean, it's a reminder that while Jesus willfully accepted the suffering in his humanity, he never gave up his full deity. Well, that's comforting because it means no matter how tough a situation you find yourself in, Jesus' power is always sufficient to take care of you. Now, we're going to come back to the significance of Jesus' humanity and deity at the end of this message. But right now, let's dive into the text and walk through the story of Jesus in the garden verse by verse. Okay, this is from the Gospel of Mark. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and became anguished and distressed. Okay, pause here for a second. There's a lesson for us in this text. When Jesus was in anguish, when Jesus was distressed, bracing for the most difficult time in his life, he didn't want to face it alone. So he brought along Peter and the sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. Folks, these were his closest friends. He wanted support. He wanted encouragement. Question for you. Do you have close friends like that in your life? That if your life gets really tough, you can pick up the phone and they'll be there for you? Well, if not, you need to begin investing in relationships because the day will come when you are in anguish, when you are distressed, and you need somebody by your side to pray for you, to encourage you, just to be present with you. I mean, if Jesus, the Son of God, wanted and needed companionship, how much more do you and I? Okay, moving along. 
Verse 38. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. You talk about intense. His soul, the very essence of his being was so grieved, so stretched, so stressed that he was almost at the point of death. And that is serious suffering. Going a little farther, he threw himself down with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Notice he doesn't just fall to the ground. It says he threw himself down with his face to the ground. This is serious turmoil and agony that Jesus is in. He wants this cup of suffering to pass from him, but he surrenders his will to the will of his father. And whenever you're going through suffering in life, it's okay to pray, God, please take this pain, take this suffering away from me. But when it's all said and done, we should be able to say, yet not what I will, but what you will, God. Verse 40. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, Jesus had already asked him to stay awake with him and pray, but they couldn't do it. I mean, not even for one hour. And Jesus wasn't just concerned for himself here. Did you notice this? He was warning Peter to pray so that he wouldn't fall into temptation, which we know he later did. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And then I love this next line from Jesus. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How true is that, right? And have you ever experienced that one? It's the person on a diet who finishes a large meal when someone asks, you know, who's up for dessert? (laughs) The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's the alcoholic who's offered just one sip at an office party. Well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's the man at his computer who notices an enticing little pop-up window flashing in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's our response to the alarm clock we set to get up early in the morning and exercise, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anyway, too convicting. Let's get back to our story. Says he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will must be done. He came again and found them sleeping. They could not keep their eyes open. <laughs> I mean, these guys were obviously exhausted. Says here they couldn't even keep their eyes open. Now, I can relate to this. Ironically enough, it happened to me on my trip back from Israel. So you're looking at a guy who's never been able to sleep in any kind of moving vehicle. Not a car, not a bus, not a train, not a plane. So if I go on a long trip, I'm always going to be tired when I arrive at my destination. Well, after a long, exhausting week of touring the Holy Land, our flight back to the United States was moved up from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. That meant before we even boarded the flight, we had been up for 18 hours. Then we took a 12-hour flight to New York followed by an 11-hour layover in the airport in New York, followed by another four-hour flight to Austin. I mean, by the time I got to bed in Georgetown, I had been awake for 47 hours, two full days straight. I don't think I've ever been that tired in my life. And as the text says here, I couldn't even keep my eyes open. Verse 44, 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing once more. This is the third time Jesus prayed to be released from his anguish and distress. I mean, he's crying out to his heavenly father. His friends can't stay awake for him. He feels alone. He feels abandoned. His soul, the Bible says, was close to death. This is the most intense moment for Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke gives us an interesting little side note to our story here. See, Luke is a doctor, so he knows something about medical conditions. And he says this about Jesus. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. People, this is a remarkable passage. It gives us some insight into the true humanity of Jesus. First of all, Luke says an angel appeared to strengthen Jesus. And given the fact that Jesus was nearing the point of death, many scholars believe he would have died in the garden if that hadn't taken place. His suffering was so intense that it resulted in a rare medical condition known as hematidrosis, where you actually sweat drops of blood. And hematidrosis is brought on by extreme stress and mental contemplation. Again, because he was God in the flesh, Jesus knew what lied ahead. And because he was human like us, his physical body reacted accordingly. Dr. Frederick Zugabe, the chief medical examiner at Rockland County, New York, he describes hematidrosis as follows. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict... Then, as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Now that is intense, people. I mean, I've been anxious, I've been stressed out before, but nothing like what Jesus experienced here. Now, I'm reminded of Hebrews 4.15 again, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. If you've ever been stressed out or anxious, Jesus has been even more so than you. And I think that can actually be very encouraging. Now, I've used this passage to minister to people who wrestle with anxiety and then feel guilty about it, thinking anxiety is somehow definitely a sin. Well, if that's true, then Jesus would be guilty of sin here because this medical condition is directly related to stress and anxiety. And we don't have time to get into this fully, but there's a difference between worry and stress. There's a difference between worry and anxiety. Now, sometimes there's a fine line between the two, but there is a difference. See, worry is when you sit around contemplating all sorts of things that might go wrong or that you might not be able to control. And you get yourself all worked up over those things, 90% of which never even happen. See, worry happens when we don't submit ourselves to God's will. And so we end up with needless problems that God never intended us to have. And worry can be controlled. And worry does lead to stress and anxiety. But, and this is big, Not all stress and anxiety are the result of worrying. Let me say that again. Not all stress and anxiety are the result of worrying. Stress or anxiety can simply be the body's natural physiological response to something that's happening to you or is going to happen to you. 
It's the body's way of preparing you for something intense. Causes the release of adrenaline and it cannot be controlled, people. It varies from human being to human being and it actually has to do with the raw material we're born with. A guy named Daniel Goldman addresses this in a book entitled Emotional Intelligence. This is what he says. He says, we all have certain genetic predispositions. We're wired differently and that determines how much of a risk taker or thrill seeker we are. And it also determines our overall stress and anxiety levels. From birth, between 15 to 20% of children are prone to timidity. Some kids from the moment they're born are more finicky about new foods, more reluctant about new places and shyer around strangers. From birth, their hearts actually beat faster in new situations. They're genetically predisposed to be more prone to guilt and self-reproach. And this is so predictable among mammals that it's not just true of humans. Exactly the same proportion of cats are prone to timidity. Contrary to the popular saying, they are less curious. They are less likely to go to new territories and they kill smaller rodents. Around 15% of cats are born timid. Let me just take a quick aside here and ask you, is that a spiritual problem? Right? Is it that the cat is just not close enough to God? No, of course not. I mean, no cat is close to God in the first place. Dogs maybe, but, but not cats. Anyway, Goldman continues. This is actually a physiological phenomenon because individuals born on the other side of the spectrum, those with a temperament that has a high capacity to experience risk, they have a lot of a chemical in their systems known as GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. And GABA actually makes their systems less susceptible to stress and adrenaline. So these people have to have a high amount of risk just to keep from being bored in life. These are the skydiving, bungee cord jumping, pinto drivers in our society. Their bodies just don't feel or react chemically the same way as others. But other people are born with a genetic predisposition where their bodies don't have a lot of GABA. So they have a high sensitivity to risk. They're physically more prone to feel stressed and anxious. They're going to be the risk avoiders. They're extremely sensitive to adrenaline. And they may feel more anxious about going to a party and having to make small talk than somebody else experiences when they're going to jump out of an airplane. And that's just innately physiological. Wow, isn't that fascinating? So if you feel anxious a lot, and it's not because you're sitting around worrying all the time, don't beat yourself up over a supposed lack of faith or feel like you're inferior to the faith of somebody else. It could be purely physiological. Now, having said that, the Spirit will sometimes convict us because our stress or our anxiety is the result of worry. And if that's the case, follow the advice of Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, the bottom line is this. Jesus can relate to our stress and anxiety, and it's not because he didn't trust God. It was a physiological response to a very real threatening situation in his life. But even in the midst of our stress and anxiety, the solution is always 
to turn to God. Okay, let's move on. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is approaching, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. Okay, here, I want to jump over to John's account of what happens when the soldiers arrive. You know, we just saw a vivid picture of Jesus' humanity, the fact that his body was weak and frail like ours. But now we're going to get a snapshot of Jesus' deity, the fact that he is still the Almighty One. The soldiers come to arrest him, and John 18, 4-6 says this, Then Jesus, because he knew everything that was going to happen to him, came and asked them, Who are you looking for? They replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. He told them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they retreated and fell to the ground. Hmm. So they come to Jesus armed with swords and spears. And when they say they're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus says, I am. Now we include the word he in the English text there. It's not in the Greek. Jesus just says, I am. And if you know something about Old Testament history, you know that the name I am was the holiest name of God in the Old Testament. I mean, it was so sacred, so powerful that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce the term. So when Jesus says, I am, a little bit of his glory and power slips out. And the Bible says they all backed up and fell to the ground. So there's Jesus, the one to be arrested, standing there, and the whole army is lying in the dirt. Just a little reminder that even though Jesus endured weakness and stress in his humanity, he never lost his power. He never lost his deity. He willingly surrendered himself there in the garden. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent by the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and took hold of Jesus and arrested him. As I was standing there in the Garden of Gethsemane, that memory came flooding into my mind. A close, trusted friend, one of his own disciples, betraying him with a kiss. Mm. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend, someone you trusted? Jesus can relate. A sting of someone being too busy and leaving you hanging in your time of need. The sting of someone betraying you at work. The sting of a best friend who has an affair with your spouse. He's been tempted in every way, just like you and me. But Jesus doesn't retaliate. Verse 51 says, But one of those with Jesus grabbed his sword, drew it out, and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take hold of the sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and that he would send me more than 12 legions of angels right now? How then would the scriptures that say it must happen this way be fulfilled? Did you catch that? 
Jesus could have wiped out those soldiers with a word. As God in the flesh, he could have easily avoided all this, just disappeared. He could have called down 12 legions of angels to protect him. He could have made his skin impenetrable or anesthetized his pain so he felt nothing, but he didn't. Instead, he willingly chose to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities. Why? Because he was on a mission to suffer in our place, to die for our sins. At that moment, Jesus said to the crowd, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day, I sat teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me. But this has happened so that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And what a sad ending to this scene in the garden. All his friends took off and left him. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus would go on to a cross and declare, it is finished. And that was a victory declaration. And then he rose from the grave three days later, bringing with him what we call now the gospel or good news, that all the sins of mankind have been paid for in full. Now, he had to go through hell in the garden and on the cross to pay for our sins, but he did it. He did it for you and he did it for me. And now it's finished. And because of that, we should live a life of joy and gratitude, just basking in the goodness of our Savior. I mean, the only issue that remains is our response to what Jesus has done. Those who believe it, receive it. Those who don't believe won't receive that forgiveness. It's that simple. John 1.12 says this, But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God to become God's children. Because he is fully human, Jesus can relate to, he can sympathize with your weaknesses. Hebrews 2.18 says this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he's fully human, Jesus can sympathize with your weaknesses. But also, because he is fully God, Jesus has the power to deal with your problems in life. If you're weak, he's strong. If you're clueless, he has all wisdom. If you're sad, he can bring joy. If you're afraid, he can calm those fears. Because Jesus is fully human and fully God, he is sufficient for every need in our lives. And for that reason, we should be a people of joy, always. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord, what an incredible story we see in the garden. We see, Jesus, that you were the God-man, that you were fully human. You experienced all the pain and suffering and even more so than we ever could in this life. So you can relate to our weaknesses, to our struggles, and you're so gracious to us. And at the same time, you never relinquished your deity, the fact that you were fully God. And so you have all power to be able to not only be our advocate, but also to be able 
to strengthen us when we're weak, to give us wisdom when we don't have that, to calm our fears when we're anxious. Lord, all those things are possible because you are the God-man. And we thank you so much for the fact that you endured even to the point of just sweating drops of blood, stress and anguish like we can't even imagine that you chose in the garden to fulfill the purpose for which you were sent, to die on the cross in our place. If you're listening to me right now and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it's a simple thing. It's not a matter of going to church or doing good works or reading your Bible or giving money to the church or to the poor. It's a matter of faith in Jesus. That alone saves you. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you are the forgiver of my sins and the giver of eternal life, that you died on the cross for me. And for those of us who have that relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that we would be in awe of what you've done here, of all you went through on our behalf. We are not worthy of that. The agony, the pain, the suffering. And it wasn't just the physical suffering that you endured on the cross. It was the spiritual death that you died for us and the agony of the garden. So we thank you. And I pray that this story today would change the way we look at you and change the way we live our lives, that we would be a people full of joy and gratitude, that we would rejoice in you, the Lord, always. It's in the matchless name of our Savior, the God-man Jesus, we pray. Amen.